Good morning. Let's pray. Father, you've provided such a great salvation for us in Jesus Christ. And you have given us in your word every reason to cling to him. We pray that as we consider the path the, the passage before us this morning, that that we would regard it with the sobriety of commensurate with the seriousness of the things that it addresses. We, we pray, Father, that we would feel the weight of our precarious standing in this world and how Christ is a firm foundation for us. Please use your word to move us to persevere in faith, aware of what awaits us if we walk away, aware of what awaits us if we continue to run the race looking to Him. We need your help. We thank you that you have invited us to pray such things with boldness. And so we do so and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. passage this morning is chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. So let's stand together as we're finding our place there, and I will read that passage. Chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Please be seated. Leadership in our culture has, has drifted toward a, a philosophy that we might call gentle leadership or positive-only leadership. And some are seeing this in, in homes, the way that people are raising their children. We're seeing it in schools. 
We're seeing it in some workplaces. And, and, and the idea, of course, is you, you, you try to shape people's trajectory in, in only positive ways. So in, in a home, this might look like a parent saying to a child, if you obey, I'll give you a cookie. Or something else good will happen. Or, or, or even kind of a, a manipulative thing like, don't, don't you want to be good? Life will be so much more enjoyable if, if, if you'll just be agreeable. So, so with, with gentle or positive-only leadership, th- there are no warnings for, for bad behavior. There's only a reward for good behavior. And in some cases, if, if there are warnings for bad behavior, the, the consequences are so inconsequential, inconsequential that they are easy to ignore. There's a lot that could be said about this trend, and, and I'll save that for another time perhaps. All I will say is that that is not how the Bible directs us. It's not how the Bible directs us to parent. It's not how the Bible directs us to lead. It's not how the Bible shapes our behavior. Now, certainly the Bible does put positive incentives in front of us. That's undeniable. A couple of examples. One is James 1-2, where the apostle writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Praise God for that positive incentive that Scripture's put in front of us. Another one is Revelation 2.7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we, we, we could name many other places in the Scriptures where where the Lord puts in front of us great positive reasons to, to walk in faith and to persevere in Christ. The Bible teaches us that good things happen to those who follow Christ in obedient faith. That is not the only way that the Bible shapes our, our thoughts and our trajectory. Bad things happen when you don't follow Christ in obedient faith. And that kind of warning set alongside positive incentives, that kind of warning is just as loving and kind. It's just as loving and kind of God to put in front of us. Here's what's going to happen if you don't follow Jesus. So imagine that you're on a train with with your family and you know that there has been a mix-up on the Exchanges, you know that you are heading toward a collision with another train. You know this. Catastrophic violence is about to explode on everyone around you, including your spouse and your children. How loving is it to say to your family in that moment, if you'll buckle your seatbelt, I will give you an ice cream. That that kind of, of, of leadership, that kind of direction is not loving. In fact, it is cruelly dismissive of the danger awaiting your family. In moments like those, it is far more loving to say, buckle up right now or you will die. God is kind enough not to ignore what is inevitably coming to those who enter the next life outside of Christ. He is too loving to leave us in the dark about that. So the Bible doesn't just give us a vision of paradise to move us to persevere in, in faith. With compassion, God repeatedly also says, here is the horror that you can know will happen if you don't persevere in faith. 
We saw in our very first message here in, in Hebrews that the author recognized among professing believers a, a temptation to shrink back from following Jesus. It, it, it appears that there were people in various places on a continuum of shrinking back from fellowship. On one end of, of that spectrum, there were those who had simply lost their enthusiasm for Christian discipleship. That is a, a lack of zeal for the things of the Lord. On the other end of, of the spectrum of shrinking back were those who were right on the edge of walking away from Jesus. As we saw last week, the author gives one prescription for everyone on that spectrum. He prescribed three practices of perseverance. First of all, draw near to God in Christ. Because of all that that has been done for you in the gospel, draw near to God. Don't wait for some shining light. Don't wait for any kind of extra-biblical personal invitation. Move toward God in fellowship. Second part of that prescription was hold fast to the confession of hope. Hold fast to the confession of hope. That is, steep your mind and your heart in the content of the gospel and evaluate everything else around you, even your own thoughts, in light of the truth of the gospel. Hold the gospel as your standard. Third part of the prescription was to encourage others. Give yourself to helping other people Walk in the love and good works that are indicative of faith. There are several things that we can note about those three parts of of the prescription. Three things that we can note about it. First of all, all of those parts of the prescription, they are so practical that you can put them on the calendar. Second, they require a volitional choice. You must consciously decide to do these things. You consciously decide to draw near. You consciously decide to hold fast. You consciously decide to encourage others. A third thing about this prescription, each element of it is for everyone in the church. Everyone needs to persevere in the faith, so everyone needs to do those three things. Draw near, hold fast, encourage others. The author's message is it's just so clear. He is saying, do these things. Do them. Do them now. Verses 26 to 31, which we've just read, he gives incentives to do those things. And it's nothing akin to, if you do, God will give you an ice cream. Rather, he gives food for thought regarding the failure to persevere. Here's what will happen if you do not follow Christ in faith to the end. Implied is that we should ponder these things. We should meditate on these things in order to fuel our our journey toward the final day. So we would do well to think on these things and and allow them to, to fuel our perseverance. The first of those is that we should meditate on the absence of hope. Meditate on the absence of hope. Look at verse 26 again. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Clearly, if if we read this in context, the word for at the beginning of this verse indicates he's giving reasons to implement the foregoing practices of perseverance, drawing near, holding fast, encouraging others. 
And the opening if clause addresses one category of people inside a larger category of people. All right? There's a category of people inside a larger category. The larger category that he's addressing is those who have received the knowledge of the truth. Those who have received the knowledge of the truth. And that larger category includes every soul in this room. It includes every one of us. Every one of us have received the knowledge of the truth. You know that man was created to know, love, and serve the Creator, but that man rebelled against God. And in his sin, man is separated from God and he is liable to the wrath of God. And you know that that is true of everyone, including all of us. You know that the only hope for salvation is by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The eternal Son took on human flesh. He lived a perfectly obedient life. He died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of men. He rose from the dead on the third day, proving His victory over sin and death. You know that everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ has been credited with Jesus' righteousness and their penalty has been paid by Him such that they are reconciled to the Father. You know that in Christ is not only the power to be reconciled to God, but the the power to endure the difficulties of discipleship until He returns again. You, every one of you, me, we have received the knowledge of the truth. Now, there may, there may be someone who would say, but, but, but I'm not sure that I believe all of that. So, I haven't rec- really received knowledge. Romans chapter 1 teaches that there is no such thing as a true skeptic. You know the truth. And God has made the truth so obvious that Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that we have no excuse for not Worshiping Him. Further, skepticism or some pretense of uncertainty is not going to be received as a valid excuse on the day of judgment. Belief is a command in the Scriptures. To my knowledge, there is no evidence in Scripture that we are commanded to wait for belief to happen to us. There are are many, many straightforward commands to believe. And again, you know this. So, so everyone here is within this larger category of persons who have received the knowledge of the truth. But there is this smaller category within the larger category, and it is those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now, this is the author's way of describing the apostasy against which he has been warning us since the beginning of this letter. To go on sinning deliberately is to walk away from the faith. You'll recall that for the author of Hebrews, the line between faith and obedience is blurry at best. And that's because he knows that faith bears the fruit of obedience. To walk in obedience is to demonstrate unbelief. To, to, to walk in obedience is to demonstrate belief. Just like he argued back in chapters 3 and 4. 
So when he talks about sinning deliberately, he means deliberately walking in in a life of, of unbelief. To go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth is to hear the gospel and to not perceive in faith. It is to hear the message of this letter and not take it to heart and therefore not walk in these practices of perseverance that we've seen in the previous passage. To not draw near, not hold fast, not encourage others. All of us, again, all of us are in that larger category. Who among us are in that smaller category? If you are somewhere on that spectrum of shrinking back that I mentioned earlier, and and again, that spectrum goes anywhere from I've just lost my enthusiasm for the Christian life to I'm really thinking of walking away. If you are anywhere on that spectrum, pay pay very close attention to what he writes to this smaller category because you are in the danger zone. At the same time, is there anyone here among us who could wisely say, could rightly say, I could never be in that smaller category. I could never be someone who deliberately walks in sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth. I would suggest to you that's a dangerous attitude. Say to ourselves, I could never be there. A very prominent expression of that attitude in the Scriptures is Peter's. Just hours before denying Jesus three times, he swore up and down that he never would. Though all would leave you, I will never leave you. So it would be wise for us, every one of us, to take seriously what he says to this smaller category of of people, those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, what does that mean? The author has been teaching that Jesus is is the only sacrifice for sin that leads to true cleansing of the conscience, that leads to true atonement. So if someone turns away from Jesus, there is no other place to seek forgiveness. There will be no forgiveness of sin. And, and th- th- this is not a new concept that we're just getting to here in Hebrews 10. Turn with me back to Hebrews 6. Some of you may remember this passage. Hebrews 6.4 is even stronger than chapter 10. Hebrews 6.4 and following. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, I'll not re-preach those verses. You can find that sermon on our website. But I read them Again, just to say that it seems that the author in chapter 6 is saying the same thing in in chapter 10. If you walk away from Christ, you are doomed. And and in Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6, if we read that in the most natural way possible, it indicates there's no coming back. Walk away, there is no coming back. And some commentators do theological 
things, I, I would call them hermeneutical tricks to, to say that, well, you actually can come back. The question that I would have for you is, do you want to gamble eternity on that interpretation? Is it wise to think, I'm going to walk away, but I could always come back. As strong as the language is in Hebrews 6, 6, I think I could always come back. Do you want your eternity riding on that disputed interpretation? Whichever way you fall on that question. Somebody who walks away, they could come back, or somebody who walks away, they can't come back. The author's point right here is, is very clear. If we do not persevere in the faith, if we do not cross the finish line of faith into the next life, there is no hope. He, he's bringing this up to us so that we'll ponder this. And so let's ponder this. Hope, hope is something that all people desire, everyone. It's something that all people long for and need. When, when, when things are going really well, we, we may not think about it quite as much, but when we're troubled, which is frequently the case, we look for hope. And, and the, the way that, that the typical person, even outside these walls, would, would think of hope is, I need something. I need some truth, some promise, some reality, some possible future, which, which is going to say to me right now, everything is going to be okay. That's how we typically conceive of hope. The author has been telling us that for those who persevere in faith, everything is going to be okay. In spite of of all that you see around you, in spite of all of your experiences, everything is going to be okay if you persevere in faith in Christ. Christ's return for those who belong to Him is the singular source of true hope in this world. For those who reject Jesus, there is none. There is no hope. Now, we can make ourselves feel better by pursuing temporal goals, by, by adopting a you-only-live-once approach to the rest of our days, you know, enjoying life's experience as much as, as, much as possible. We might try to make ourselves feel better by loving and being loved by those around us. We can fill ourselves with foreign substances to help us forget about what is coming. But the the truth is that none of those things are hope. They will pass away. And we will pass away. And at the end of it all, the person outside of Christ will find it is not going to be okay. So if, if we're lax about drawing near to God, about holding fast the confession of hope, about encouraging others to be stirred up to, to love and good works, we would do well to spend time pondering, thinking deeply about the absence of hope that will be ours should we turn away from Jesus. There will be no atonement. You will bear your sins. Meditate on that. Second, meditate on the severity of judgment. Meditate on the severity of judgment. Verse 27. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we were to back back up a little bit and, and think about 
how the grammar is working in, in verse 26 into verse 27. What, what he's saying is, if we go on deliberately sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but what does remain is a fearful expectation of judgment. In other words, there, there, there is no hope. No hope, but there is only a countdown to perdition. There's ultimately no joy to look forward to, but what you can look forward to, the only thing that you can look forward to is hell. He further characterizes that as a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Revelation chapter 19, chapter 20 tells of a lake of fire. A lake of fire. And as we read of that lake of fire in Revelation 19 and 20, we should understand that the purpose of Revelation is actually very similar to the purpose of the book of Hebrews. Contrary to the opinions of some, Revelation is is not concerned with giving us a timeline to discern when and how the Lord is going to return, but rather the concern of Revelation is that we would conquer. That's, that's the key word in Revelation, and it means something very similar to the word persevere or endure in Hebrews. In Revelation, the lake of fire is the final destination of those who do not conquer or persevere in the faith. That fire will consume the adversaries, and adversaries is an important word here because an adversary of God is what a person proves to be when he or she does not follow Christ to the end. They prove themselves to be an enemy of God. In Paul's theology, there are only two kinds of people. You can read about this in Romans chapter 5. There are enemies of God and there are children of God. All the children of God were formerly enemies of God. Now, how did they, did they move from one category to the other? How were they transferred from the body of enemies to the body of children? By one thing, reconciliation to God through faith in the death of Jesus Christ. Someone who turns away from that, who turns away from the Son, proves himself then to be, by definition, an enemy of God. Because it's only through the Son that you become a child of God. However, we, we, we might say, based upon other passages, that not all enemies of God are the same. Some enemies of God are going to have it worse on the last day than others. And how do we know that? Because some on the last day will be punished not only for the typical sins of human existence, but they will also specifically be punished for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at, look at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You, you can read about that in Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 6. Under the old covenant, this is what happened. Set aside the law of Moses, which is to say, just disobey the law of Moses. That was it. You, you are dead but he, he's bringing this up not because we are still under the law, but he, he's wanting to make a comparison. Now, we've noted for chapters now that the new covenant is superior to the old. Its mediator, Jesus Christ, is the final culminating revelation of all God's intention to save. T- turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verse 2. 
In that chapter, he makes a very similar comparison that he's setting up here in chapter 10. Hebrews 2.2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and when he talks about a message declared by angels, he's talking about the law of Moses. Since that message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. He's, he's saying, look, look if, if you were certain to be judged by setting aside the message proclaimed by angels, how on earth are you going to escape, escape thumbing your nose at a message declared by God Himself and His apostles and His people and His Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament, you couldn't get away with rejecting the law. How are you going to get away with rejecting the superior revelation of Christ? So, so we've got similar comparisons in chapter 2 and, and chapter 10 regarding rejecting Moses versus rejecting Christ. But there is a difference between these two comparisons. There's a difference between chapter 2 and, and chapter 10. In chapter 2, his point regards the certainty of judgment. If a breaker of the law of Moses was judged... How much more certain is it going to be that the rejecter of Christ is going to be judged? The comparison in chapter 10 is different in that it regards the severity of judgment. It's already established. Look, if you, if you, if you reject the cross, you are certain to be judged if you would have been judged under the law. But now in chapter 10, he wants to talk about the severity of that judgment. Look again at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, this is 10:28. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? The penalty for rejecting the gospel will be worse than the penalty for rejecting the law of Moses. It will be worse than death. That's what you got under the law of Moses. Be worse than death. Pay careful attention to how he characterizes this. How does God receive the rejection of the gospel? We should say that he takes it personally. He takes it personally. It's not merely the rejection of a message. It's trampling his son. It's, it's not just a decision to, to go another way. It is treating like refuse the blood of Christ. It's not just adopting a different worldview. It's outraging the spirit of grace. These are, these are very personal terms that he uses. God takes this personally. And so the author's point is not simply, it is not simply, you're going to pay for your sins. Everyone outside of Christ is going to pay for their sins. Everyone. Here the emphasis, emphasis is, you're going to be in a worse position even than that because you consciously rejected the atoning blood of the eternal Son made flesh. It will be worse for you than if you had never heard the gospel. You could write down Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. 
It's a passage where Jesus teaches this very thing. Jesus, Jesus notes that on the last day, it is going to be more tolerable than for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom than for the towns of Israel. Why is that going to be? It's because the towns of Israel have received the message of the gospel and they rejected Christ. Peter, Peter apparently was listening as Jesus taught that because he writes in 2 Peter 2.21, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteous than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. You understand? The person who has never heard the gospel, they're going to pay for their sins. The person who has never heard the gospel is going to pay for their sins. The person who has heard the gospel and refused it is going to pay all the more. Now, in our positive-only culture, it may seem distasteful to use the threat of hell to encourage faith in Christ. And and, and some, even in the church, will refer to this kind of thing as, as the fire insurance approach. Following Christ in order to avoid, avoid judgment, that's, that's frequently juxtaposed with the supposedly more virtuous motive of following Christ out of love for God. I would suggest to you that, that using only this, saying this is the reason to come, rather than this, the threat of judgment, I would suggest that that's the evangelistic equivalent of gentle, positive-only parenting. And it's contrary to how Jesus Himself called other people to the truth. The, 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 the so-called fire insurance approach was pioneered by John the Baptist and perfected by Jesus Himself. The, the, the terminology that the author of Hebrews uses here about judgment, the judgment that awaits the one who rejects Christ, this, la- this, this language in, in Hebrews, this is tame, bland language compared to that used by Jesus. Jesus uses phrases like, Outer darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unquenchable fire. And if Jesus is right, and of course He is, then it is gracious of Him to warn us of what awaits on the last day. And it is wise of us to ponder that judgment as a means toward clinging to Jesus. Those who receive the knowledge of the truth and turn away will endure a severer judgment as a result. What is it that makes that judgment so much more severe? That question leads us to our third meditation, which is meditate on the power of God. Meditate on the power of God. Hebrews 10.30 For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we we have two quotes here in, in the text. They come from consecutive verses in Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance, recompense, judgment. These are close synonyms indicating What is coming for those who are outside of Christ? But the the, the point is not simply that we will be repaid. That's not what the, the author of Hebrews is saying, that you will be repaid. Rather, his point is, who is going to repay us? 
whose vengeance this is. The point is that we know who said these words, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The, law, the, 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 the author is calling our attention to what we know of God. God is the one who will repay. 11.3, Hebrews 11.3 tells us that this God is a God who created the world with words. Created the world with words. If we go all the way back to the beginning of, of this letter, we find in, in chapter 1, verse 3, He upholds the universe by His word. He's so powerful that, that He speaks and worlds come into being and they are su- sustained in existence. This is a God who drowned the world. He drowned the world with a global flood and then He caused those waters to recede. He brought miraculous plagues upon the nation of Egypt so as to set free His people from slavery. He parted the Red Sea so that His people could could cross on dry land. For decades, He fed them with food that fell from the sky. We could go on and on in the first testament of Scripture, but we'll fast forward to the quintessential display of God's power, and that is Him raising Christ from the dead. Now think, think, think about this. He is raising from the dead the person who had just absorbed all the wrath for all the sin of all His people. Isaiah Isaiah characterizes that absorption of wrath as God crushing Christ. God is so powerful that He raised to eternal life one that He had crushed. The New Testament indicates that this is a God who is so powerful that He will one day destroy creation completely and He will create a new one, new heaven and new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, so powerful is He that he, His own person will be the light by which His creation sees This is God who says, my word will not come back to me void, but I will accomplish that for which I sent it. God's word is so tremendously powerful. Imagine what he can do with his hands. And that's what he draws our attention to here. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In in, in theology, we speak of God's omnipotence. His omnipotence. His being all-powerful. Strictly speaking, this does not mean that God can do anything, but rather understood in the context of everything that the Bible teaches about God, God's omnipotence means that He can do anything that accords with His own will and character. He can do anything that accords with His own will and character. He's unfathomably powerful. But what makes it fearful to fall into the hands of, 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 of the living God is His character. Because His character directs what He's going to do with His power. And that, that is awful news for the one who turns away from Christ. By virtue of His perfect holiness and justice, God has a settled hostility against sin. The Bible calls it wrath. We've already seen in verse 27, there will be a fury of fire, he said. There will be a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And there's debate 
in theology circles about whether hell involves literal fire or, or is this just a metaphor intended to depict something awful. I don't have a strong opinion on that question, but, but what must be certain is that if, there, if, if fire is not involved, if it's not involved, then the imagery of fire must be used in the Bible because it's the closest thing in human experience to what the wrath of God is like. Look back up at verse 27. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Just look at the word fury for a moment. Fury is more literally the word for zeal. Zeal. Strong passion. The wrath of God against His enemies is not going to be tentative. It's not going to be measured. It it will not be indifferent. The wrath of God is His zeal against unrighteousness. His holy passion to prove Himself just against those who have not only broken His law, but who knew the way of salvation and yet said, I'd rather be without you than with you. Why, for the person who rejects Christ, is it fearful to fall into the hands of the living God? It's because upon death, the only thing that that person will ever experience of God is omnipotent wrath. Why does the author of Hebrews write these things? Why does the Holy Spirit inspire these kinds of, of warnings across the canon of Scripture? Why? It's because God is kind. He he, he does not hold out to us the, the promise of eternal reward alone as an incentive for us to cling to Jesus. He is more kind than that. He's more kind than just to hold out a gift. He makes certain that if we walk away from Him, there are no surprises regarding what is in store for us. He's kind. These are gracious warnings. And they're intended to have the effect of moving us to actively, consciously, tenaciously cling to Jesus. And again, what what that means, what that means in everyday life is draw near to God. Hold fast the confession of hope. Have meaningful relationships with other believers wherein you are being stirred up and you are stirring them up. Cling to Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all 
the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, would you minister to us in these moments by not allowing our hearts to harden upon hearing these things. Where our hearts are hard, Father, please soften them. Deliver your word through the cracks in that shell that we might realize these things are true. Christ is our only hope, and so we will persevere in faith. We will put one foot in front of the other, looking to Jesus until he returns. Would you do that for us? Would you, would you prevent the enemy, prevent our, our, our own unsanctified hearts and minds from rejecting what we've heard? I need your help. Pray that you would do this. And we, we pray, Father, that... that as you see our hearts, you would grant us to see our hearts, that, that every one of us would realize how badly we need this gracious warning. Lord, let your word have its way in us, that, that seeing what awaits those who walk away from Christ is horrific, eternally horrific. And so, Lord, let us with great gusto draw near and hold fast and encourage others. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.